Uh, if you guys are taking notes, the title of today's message is called Who's in Charge? Who's in Charge here? Uh, as we begin our worship, or as we begin our uh, time together in God's Word, I want to ask us what we think about the topic of death. It's perhaps something that we thought about before, that we still think about every day, of how we're going to die and when we're going to die. It's something that we cannot avoid no matter how much we try to run from it or hide from it. It's not something that we have control over, and it's definitely not something that we can overpower. We don't know when it's coming or how it's going to happen. But we know for a certain that it's coming. Looking at today's passage, we come to the climax of the book of Matthew as he leads us to the final few days of Jesus' life here on earth before his death. If you recall from last week, Jesus is in Gethsemane with his disciples praying and crying out to God that if it is, all, if it is at all possible for God to remove the cup from him, meaning to his death. However, as Jesus continues to pray, the more Jesus prays and cries out to God, the more his heart begins to align with the heart of God. As Jesus declares at the end, not my will, but yours be done. As Jesus prays, Judas, who was one of the twelve, or once one of the twelve disciples, is now leading a great crowd against Jesus, armed with swords and clubs, coming to meet Jesus. But this time, they're not coming to follow Jesus. They're not coming to marvel at Jesus. They're not coming to worship Jesus, but they're coming to seize him, to arrest him, even if it means bloodshed. Just at a glance, it seems as though Jesus is in a lot of trouble. Just at a glance from this passage alone, it seems as though that Jesus has nowhere to escape and no plan of escape. There's no way out. However, as we look closer into the passage, as we look closer into the story, we begin to realize that it's not Judas actually who's in control. It is not the crowd or even the disciple who's in control or who's in charge, but rather we see how despite the chaos, despite the betrayal, the arrest with swords swinging and disciples fleeing, in the midst of all of this, Jesus Jesus is in complete control as he faithfully submits to carry out God's ultimate rescue plan. The plan of ultimate salvation. During our time together this morning, I want us to quickly look at three different specific characters and their plan. First we see Judas, and then the anonymous disciple who decided to cut off someone's ear. And then last but not least, Judas. First, let's look at Judas' plan, his wicked plan of betrayal. Starting back in verse 20 of chapter 26, uh, where Jesus was sharing his last supper with his disciples, we don't really hear of Judas. He's not there. That's because he's been busy visiting the chief priests of Jerusalem, trying to figure out a way to make a profit from Jesus and through Jesus, by betraying Jesus. We see in verse 15 of chapter 26 how Judas agreed to hand Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver, which was equivalent to about $7,500. That might sound like a lot of money for some of us, but that amount, 30 pieces of silver, is what you would pay or what you are owed if one of your ox or one of your cows accidentally murders someone else. 
we see in verse 47 that as Jesus was speaking to the rest of his disciples, 11 disciples in Gethsemane, here comes Judas. He's about to get paid. Here comes Judas with what he thought was the perfect plan, what he thought was the best, the master plan, to finally cash in his chips and to get paid for his hard work. You see, with Judas, his plan to betray Jesus wasn't spontaneous. It didn't happen overnight. He's been thinking about it for quite some time now. He's been planning it for quite some time. He's been planning this arrest, this betrayal, and now is the time for him to finally act upon his plan. We see, every, we see even to the very detail of how he was going to single out who Jesus was among the eleven or the twelve people there so that the chief priests and elders don't end up tying up the wrong guy. Don't make the mistake of getting the wrong guy. Judas wanted to make sure that he gets paid. Judas thought he had this situation all under control. This evil and wicked plan of betraying Jesus in exchange. We see in verse 48 that Judas had given them a sign, saying that the one he greets with the kiss of death is the one they need to arrest. Friends, this is interesting because, I don't know about you guys, if I was Judas, I would rather just point out who Jesus is from a distance, or whisper at the guard next to him that that's what So why does Judas choose to come face to face with Jesus? When we look at today's story, Judas goes to Jesus and greets him by calling Jesus Rabbi. Now this alone is a great insult to Jesus, because if you've been with Jesus throughout the years, long enough, you would know to call him Lord and Master rather than Rabbi, which simply means teacher. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, only non-Christians, only those who reject Jesus, only those who don't care for Jesus, calls him teacher. And what makes this even worse is how Judas does not see Jesus as his teacher. As he quickly unlearns everything that Jesus has been teaching him throughout his life. Lessons regarding the kingdom of God. Lessons regarding the temptation, the dangers of money. And if that wasn't bad enough, Judas goes up to Jesus to greet him. Not only by calling him rabbi, but with a kiss. Now, I don't, now that's not really the culture here, right? We, uh, during our service, if I say, please go around and greet each other, no one will go around and start kissing each other. Uh, that might cause a scene, but if you've ever visited places in Europe or in the Middle East, they still do this. They still greet each other with a kiss, either on the cheek and in some places, even on the lips. And what, what, what made this so wicked? What made Judas' act of kissing Jesus so wicked is that how the act of kissing was used as an act of affection. Yet Judas uses it as an act of betrayal. And just in case, if things were to get out of hand, just in case Jesus decides to use some of his superpowers, Judas even had a backup plan. You see in verse 47 that he even brought some backup. He brought backup just in case Jesus decides to run. We see in verse 47 that he brought a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders. We see that a great crowd has come 
holding swords and clubs. What's interesting is how the crowd was so pro-Jesus that all of a sudden they have now become very anti-Jesus. The last time the crowd was mentioned in the book of Matthew, they were welcoming Jesus into Jerusalem. They were throwing down their clothes on the road as Jesus rode into town. Not only that, we see in chapter 22, I believe I have this up there. Not only that, as you see in chapter 22, they were being astonished by the teachings of Jesus in the temple. But now, we see that they come with swords and clubs, as if Jesus is some great threat, as if Jesus is some terrorist. For Judas and for the rest of the crowd that showed up on that night, they were okay with Jesus as long as he was staying in his lane. They were okay with Jesus as long as they could benefit from Jesus. They were okay with Jesus performing miracles. They were okay with Jesus healing the sick. But once Jesus began rebuking them, their sin, their pride, or their hypocrisy, once Jesus began pointing out their sin and how they needed to be living for a greater kingdom, for a greater purpose, for a greater plan rather than their own, that's when they began to turn against Jesus. And how about us? For the majority of us, we don't really have a problem with Jesus, do we? We don't really have a problem with Jesus, even for those who don't believe in Jesus, even for those who are outside the church, they got no problem with Jesus as long as he leaves us alone. We got no problem as long as he leaves us alone, as long as he minds his own business. But we see Jesus as a threat. And we quickly become anti-Jesus when our plans begin to clash with Jesus. When our goals begin to clash with Jesus. When our desires, our sins, our hidden addictions are being pulled as When we realize that our desires, our goals, our plans are in great contrast with what Jesus desires for us in our lives, then we have a problem with Jesus. Is that true? No one has a problem with Jesus when you're doing well in school, when your family is doing well, when our job security is great, and we don't have much to stress about in our lives. But once we feel as the Jesus demands more of our attention, as he demands more of our time, more of our devotion, more of our finances, then we begin to ask the serious question, is Jesus worth following? Is it worth giving up everything to follow Jesus until they Jesus Jesus? For Judas and for the crowd, they have failed to see the beauty. They have failed to see the value and the worth of letting go of the riches of the world, letting go of the desires and their own goals, in exchange to follow Jesus. Because to them, Jesus was enough. But for Judas, he wanted to be in charge. He wanted to be in charge of his own life. And he wanted Jesus not to be in charge. And that's Judas. But we are introduced to another character in this story. An anonymous character. One of the twelve, or a disciple. His plan, we see in verse 51, is that he wanted to take matters into his own hands. 
He wanted to take his take matters into his own hands and stand up for Jesus Christ. Oh, although Matthew doesn't mention who this is, maybe intentionally, we see from other parallel gospels in John and in Luke that this person is none other than Peter himself. Disciple Peter. We see in John chapter 18, verse 10. Then Simon Peter, all revealed, right? Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right Now, we don't exactly know how many people were in that crowd that showed up with swords and clubs that night to arrest Jesus. But we can't help but to ask, what was Peter thinking? What was Peter thinking? Did he really think that he could take on all of them by himself? Nowhere do we see in the Bible that Peter was an excellent swordsman. Or maybe he thought his courage and his boldness would stir up the other disciples to be courageous as well and to fight for death. Or maybe he wanted to live up to his commitment that he made with Jesus just before, that even if his life is on the line, he would never deny Jesus. Or maybe he thought Jesus would intervene He's going to get things started, and Jesus will come along with his angel army or grant them superpowers to fight off this giant. Whatever the case might be, Jesus was not happy. He wasn't clapping, he wasn't cheering for Peter. Rather, he was not very pleased with Peter's actions. We see in Luke chapter 22 that in the midst of betrayal, in the midst of arrest, Jesus still heals the man whose ears have been just cut off. Look at me in verse 52. In verse 52, Jesus says to Peter, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Perhaps Peter thought he would be praised. Perhaps he thought he would be commended for his courage and bravery. Maybe he thought he could actually contribute with this brave act by taking matters into his own hands, or could speed it up a bit by drawing his sword. Rather, Jesus reminds Peter the lesson that Judas and the rest of the crowd had forgotten regarding the kingdom. You see, this kingdom, this new kingdom that Jesus is ushering in, this new life that Jesus offers is not built on wealth. It's not built on fame. It's not built on riches or even your own ability or courage and bravery. Rather, it's built. It's ultimately built on loving God and loving others. Throughout Jesus' ministry, this is what he's been preaching, this is what he's been teaching all this time. Never once did Jesus fight back violence with violence. Never once did Jesus fight evil with evil. Rather, Jesus always fought with love and forgiveness. Many of us, when you come to a hostile situation, it's her fault. Yeah, I was I was just minding my own business, but she started. For true disciples are not to impose God's will on others through the means of violence. For many of us, Pastor God, I never I never caused a threat to anybody else physically. But you know how important and comforting is the way that we speak. Others and we might not be swinging our swords around, but we are very good at swinging our 
the way we treat others or But Jesus, he doesn't even fight back. Not because he's unable to, but because he chooses not to. Just like Judas, Peter has quickly forgotten God's plan of salvation, God's plan of redemption, Jesus' mission here on earth. Jesus has been saying over and over again throughout his ministry how he needs to go to the cross, how he needs to die so that he can save and atone for the sins of men. But in order for that to happen, he needs to be seized, he needs to be arrested, he needs to be crucified. One of the things that really stood out in this passage is how Matthew chooses to keep Peter anonymous. Maybe Peter was like, hey, Matthew, when you're writing this, can you just make sure that you're I don't think that was the case. Perhaps the main reason for that is so that all the readers of the Gospel of Matthew, everyone who ever reads this passage, like you and I, who call ourselves disciples of Jesus Christ, can also check our hearts, can also be warned with this passage. Because if you're to be honest, friends, isn't it sad how there are just as much fights and conflicts within the church as much, and if not more, than outside? Some of us have dealt with that personally. Some of us have, have experienced that in close, in close proximity. And if you really think about it, we fight about the silliest things. Maybe we think we have the right motives, we have the right reasonings, because we want to serve the church better, or because we want to love each other better, but that's not the main concern that Jesus has. The main concern that Jesus has is, you know, at the end of the day, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, who is it for? Is it to accomplish the will of God, or is it to accomplish the will of self? Is it for the kingdom of God, or is it for the kingdom of me? We all come from different backgrounds, with different agendas, because, and it's difficult, right? Church is difficult because we're all imperfect, broken, and sinful people. So when we try to make church about me, when we try to make church about us, Rather than making it about God and about Jesus Christ, then of course we're going to butt heads. Of course, there is going to be conflict. And what's the solution? I've heard so many people say this. He's going to go to other church. He's going to go to the public church. The solution, friends, is not to run and move churches because you're part of the problem. There's no such thing as a perfect church in this world. They were always searching for that church that never that doesn't exist, at least in this attitude. I believe rather than that, the solution is to pray. That's why Jesus said, pray and ask God to help you be the agent of change. To ask God to help us to take the eyes off of ourselves and to look and to gaze upon the beauty of Jesus Christ. To make it about His will. To make it about His plan. To make it about His goals. Going back to today's passage in 56, Verse 56, we see that all the disciples were talking about, were swinging. We see that they have all fled and left Jesus all alone. Even the courageous Peter who came out swinging was nowhere to be seen. Even after boldly declaring that they would rather die than to deny Jesus, they were running as fast as they could, running through. Judas betrays, the crowd comes with swords and clubs, and the disciples are fleeing as fast as they can 
now we see Jesus all alone. And it is with this backdrop we begin to see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. It is in this circumstance and situation we begin to see the beauty of God's, beauty of Jesus' obedience to the will of God. In the midst of Judas' evil plan to betray Jesus, in the midst of Peter's brave plan to defend Jesus, yet it failed miserably, we see Jesus' submission and obedience to God's plan of salvation. Last, let's look at Jesus' If we go back and reread the passage all over again, we begin to realize that it wasn't actually Judas who was. It wasn't even the crowd with swords and clubs. It wasn't Peter who was swinging. It was, in fact, Jesus Christ who was in complete Despite having no plan of escape, the story still reads as if Jesus is in complete control and totally in charge of today's passage and the situation. First, it was Jesus who allowed Judas to greet him with a kiss, knowing what it meant. In fact, Jesus has predicted this previously during the Last Supper, that one of you will betray him. And even in the midst of betrayal, Jesus still offers him an invitation to be restored as he calls him. That's crazy, isn't it? I don't know how I don't know about you guys, but if someone is coming to betray me, to sell me for some money, my initial thought is not to invite him, to forgive him, and to restore him. But that's Jesus' plan. Judas. Do you really want to go through with this after all that we've been through today? For Jesus, no matter what Judas has done to him or will do to him, he still loves you. As he calls him, still one of you. And as for Peter, Jesus immediately rebukes him. For many of us, we think rebuke is such a negative term. Jesus was not pointing out Blaming Peter for what he's done. He's rebuking means restore. Judas or Jesus desires to rebuke Peter, reminding him of the previous teachings regarding the kingdom of God. Friends, one thing that we have to keep in mind is that Jesus is not some helpless victim. Many times we look at those paintings or these pictures of Jesus suffering, we're like, oh my gosh, Jesus, he's gone through so much suffering and pain. I pity him. He's not some helpless victim. He does not need our pity. We see in verse 53 that he's got more than 12 legions of angels available to come to his rescue at the snap of his hand. However, Jesus refuses to call for backup. He refuses to ask for help because he knows that this has to take place to fulfill the will of God. What Jesus was doing was not becoming a helpless victim because he can't fight back. He's doing it so that ultimately he can fulfill the will of God. Jesus voluntarily and peacefully allows them to seize him. He even allows them, the sinners, to lay hands on him. If you look at throughout the gospel, there's only one person who is allowed to lay hands on other people. That's Jesus Christ. For the purpose of healing others. But now, he allows them lay hands on him, so that ultimately he can be captured and seized and crucified and healed him through, through the sacrifice. Jesus didn't resist Judas' wicked, greedy 
Jesus didn't resist being seized and arrested. Jesus didn't resist the disciples leaving and running away because he knew that this was all our time. Jesus knew that this is what needed to take place. This is what needed to be done for the will of God to be fulfilled. For Jesus, there was nothing more important in his life than to do the will of God. For Jesus Christ, to live and die, to do the will of God was his greatest accomplishment. So rather than fighting back with swords and clubs, Jesus fought back with love by going to the cross and bearing for their And through Jesus' obedience, we see that scriptures perhaps the rule. You look at first Psalm chapter 22, verse 16 says, For dogs encompass me, a company of evil doers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones, they stare and gloat over me, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they pass out. It has been prophesied before Jesus is arrested that they will be pierced, and they will divide his garments. Isaiah chapter 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds, or by his wounds, we are all we like sheep have gone astray, like the disciples, we have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This was long before Jesus was even born, and it's been prophesied, it's been predicted that Jesus will come to be pierced for all transgressions. And last but not least, Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 Awake, old sword! Against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the Lord. As he arrests Jesus in Gethsemane, we see the, sh the sheep of his disciples scattered, fleeing, and running away from him. For Jesus, he didn't allow anything or anyone to get in the way of his obedience. Judas was his desire for wealth. For Peter, it was his pride, thinking he could take matters into his own hands that really drifted him away from obeying that of God. But for Jesus, throughout his entire life, he made sure that nothing and no one hindered or distracted him from obeying the will of God. As we close this morning, the question I want to ask us is, friends, how about us? How are we dealing with the distractions and the worldly temptations that are around us? that are hindering us from following Jesus Christ. For some of us, we struggle like Jews, with our desire for wealth, with our desire for money and riches. For some of us, we struggle with pride in putting our own plans forward, in putting our own goals before the plan of God. But as 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22 reminds us, to obey is better than sacrifice. God's not interested in people were well counted. He's not interested in people who are well skilled, making a name for themselves, who can offer a whole lot to the church, who can offer a lot for the kingdom of God, but rather is interested in obedience. He's interested in people who are willing to submit to his will rather than trying to make or take matters into their own People who place the will of God and his word above everything. Some of us, we place everything else above the world. 
We place everyone else and every word of other people above the word of God. So if there's anything that competes for our devotional time, if there's anything that distracts us from doing the will of God, we learn from this. Let's ask God to help us to make Him our utmost, make His plan our greatest goal. So we make it our greatest priority and our greatest authority to make Jesus our King, make His plan our King. Close our eyes and pray for this.